If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm incredibly excited about our guest. Meet Marcelo Clare. In addition to being a dear best friend of mine, Marcelo holds many titles. He is CEO of SoftBank Group International, COO of SoftBank Group Corp. He's the executive chairman of WeWork, among other companies. He oversees SoftBank Latin America and previously served as the executive chairman of Sprint, where he is recognized for delivering the best financial results in Sprint's 120-year history and for architecting the merger with T-Mobile US. Before these many accomplishments, he founded Brightstar and built it into the world's largest global wireless distribution and services company with operations in over 50 countries and revenues north of 10 billion. Brightstar was the largest Hispanic-owned business in U.S. history before Marcelo sold the company to SoftBank in 2014. Most recently, Marcelo is at the helm of SoftBank's new Opportunity Fund, which will invest 100 million into companies led by people of color. Let's welcome Marcelo. Hi, Marcelo. Hey, Alexa. So nice to so nice talking after such a long time. I know. I'm so happy to have you here. Okay, so I just want to go back to the root because I don't think I've had somebody with as many titles or nearly as much success on the show yet. And we've had some CEOs that are incredibly impressive. When did you know you were such an entrepreneur? Were you young? Was it obvious to you? Was it something, building businesses is something I know you love, but when did you know that this was your calling? So uh, it, it's, since I was very young, you know, my mom used to always tell me that I was meant to be a businessman, as she used to call me. Uh, so, you know, my, the first business I had was, I used to sell my mom's clothes. And I used to do it on my home. And when my mom was away, I used to set up a little kiosk outside. It was like a lemon, like while all the kids were selling lemonade, I was selling my mom's clothes, which is something she didn't know. So she, until one day she came back early and she saw myself sitting outside with a table and had a big line of people basically buying some of her clothes. So anything that I could get my hands on, I used to sell it. So I was an entrepreneur and I was probably 10, 11 years old when I started doing that. So I've always wanted to start businesses. I always loved the concept of figure out a way to make money since I was very young. And I kept on going at it. I remember in college, well, well most people were just going out and partying. I had my, my first business, which was buying and selling companies frequent fire miles. And that was very successful. At one point in time in college, I had, I think, over 17 people working out of my apartment. And uh, it, was, it was, I've always loved to just start businesses since my early age. 
Okay, so I want to go back, um, and I've heard this story before, but I just want to go back to the beginning of Bright Star. You're a college kid, you were building this business, and then it was acquired for, you know, billions of dollars. Tell us about those early days. So my, I would say the first large business that I had was I, I, I bought a small cell phone chain in, in Massachusetts, in Boston. It was a company called Cellular Solutions in Route 9, since you happen to be in Boston. And it was just, just a one store that I bought and I grew it to be the largest uh, independent retailers of mobile phones in the Northeast. We had stores from Maine all the way down to North Carolina. And I became quite large and I used to buy mobile phones so I could resell them in my stores. And we used to buy from two distributors. One was called Brightpoint and the other one was called Cellstar. And they were just terrible. They used to never ship stuff on orders. The prices were all out of whack and they were just terrible companies. So I figure after that was the first business I sold. I sold that that chain of mobile phones for if, if, if for a lot more than I invested in, and uh, I figured that if these distributors were so bad, a company called Brightpoint and Cellstar, I should start a new company called Brightstar, which I took the name of, of both, and I said, look, they're both so bad, and I put together their name. Maybe I could build something great, and I started Brightstar, you know, mainly in Latin America. And it was, it was just with a simple concept that I was one of the largest buyers of mobile phones when I was a retailer and nobody was serving me right. So I figured I could do a better job than them and I started Brightstar in Latin America. I was just a trader of mobile phones. You know, I used to figure out where I could buy mobile phones cheaper, take advantage of pricing disparities around the world and then resell them in Latin America. And that business grew relatively fast, we became number one in Latin America. And then we had a dream, you know, how do you bring a Latin American mark company into the US? And we became number one in the US. So therefore we figured out why not be number one in the world. And we started opening up Bright Stars pretty much in every important country in the world. And, you know, a few years later, you know, we became the largest wireless distribution company in the world. And we became the largest Hispanic company ever created in the United States. So that was Bright Star. And then, you know, then I sold it to SoftBank. I want to go through that that leadership transition of you building a company right out of school. You know, I, I know you, you love to hustle, you work hard, you work harder than most people I know. Was there like a when you look back, like a pinching moment where you were building the business and you really understood that it was going to be something big? What was like a big aha moment where you were like, wow, this is really working? You know, a big aha moment, I think, was like year three or year four of Brightstar. And then I was just sitting with my CFO and I was reviewing our financial statements over the last, quarter, last 12 months. And I said, wow, we actually became a billion dollar company. And that was like a big shock to me. I said, well, this is legit. You know, it was three years into business, but it wasn't like you close your books. It was like, I just started, we're just sitting in, a, in, in an informal meeting and I started looking back and I said, why don't you add our last 12 months revenue? And he said, it's like a billion something. I said, oh my God, we are a billion dollar company. And that was a, a really aha moment because <laughs> a billion is a really, really big number. And then another aha moment was, I used to always, I remember, I always take a lot of pride in being Hispanic, in being Latino. And there used to be a magazine called Hispanic Business. And I remember at the beginning, I think we made it to the Hispanic Business 500, and I was like number 496. I was like, wow. And I think our sixth or seventh year in business, the fact that we became the largest Hispanic business, that was a huge aha moment for me. 
But what Mora had was, it was actually the largest Hispanic business ever created in U.S. history. So that was, that was pretty cool, you know, to be an immigrant to come to the U.S. to start with nothing and to have created something from scratch. That to me was a, was a very important moment. I love it. So I, I now want to transition to your acquisition by Sprint and your transition to Sprint. Walk us through that. Uh, that first of all, how did that acquisition play out? What can you tell us about it? For everybody listening, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of young founders out there that think about what you've accomplished. And it's, you know, it, it's nice to have you break it down into the moments. So we actually sold it to SoftBank, which is a Sprint's parent company. So, you know, Brightstar was very successful. We were expanding. And one of the few countries that I had never been able to crack was Japan. Japan is really hard. And uh, somehow I got an introduction to this uh, person that, like, to most people, is like, don't know about Masa, right? Everybody has heard about Masa, but very few people get to know Masa. And somebody told me that, that we were very similar people and that I should go visit Masa. So I tried for like two years, you know, tried to get to meet Masa. And finally, Masa gave me a meeting. And uh, I had a chance to meet him. I had a chance to show him what I built. And he was very impressed. And he asked me to do something very unique for Japan, which was, hey, why don't we start buying used iPhones from Japanese consumers so we can accelerate the upgrade curve? And, you know, he asked me, he asked me if I knew how to do that. And I said, yes, I did. You know, I, you know, I do it for Apple, I do it for Verizon, I do it for AT&T, for everybody else. He called Apple, he called his friend Tim Cook to see what I was telling him was true. And Tim immediately confirmed. So he gave me a contract in less than one hour, and he asked me if I could implement it in three days. And I said, well, it took me a year to implement it in Apple, but we actually got it done in three years, so he was very impressed. And a few months later, he massa bought Sprint, which was the largest uh, acquisition from a Japanese company of a, of a US business. And Masa gave me a call and he said, hey, you know, I just bought Sprint. Would you like to work together? And I started you know, sniffing around Sprint, and we started buying phones together. And Massa invited me to be in the board of Sprint, which to me was a big deal, you know, from being a distributor to now being a, a public company board member. And we got along real good with Massa. We were trying to buy, buy T-Mobile at that point in time, but the government shut it down. And then uh, Massa called me to a room next door and he said, hey, you know, if the government doesn't approve this, we're going to be in big trouble because... You know, neither Sprint nor T-Mobile can be amazing standalone companies. We need this merger. But the government said no. And, and Mass asked me, what should we do? I said, the first thing that you need to do is you need to replace the CEO that you have because I don't think he can fix Sprint. And Massa pulled me aside. I said, I think that's a great idea. Why don't you become the CEO of Sprint? And I told Massa, yeah, that's hard. You know, there's more qualified people than me to become CEO of Sprint. And then Massa told me, well, you're a street fighter like me. I can teach you the technology. And then I told Massa, I really cannot do it because uh, I got Brightstar. And Brightstar is a real company. It's a big company. Back then, it was about $10 billion in revenue. Used to make a few hundred million dollars in profit. And then Massa said, I have no problem. I will buy Brightstar from you if you agree to become the CEO of Sprint. And then I thought it over. I said, what an amazing opportunity to go run one of America's most iconic companies. And at the same time, cash out of an investment that I made. So I think we sold Brightstar at a value, if I'm not mistaken, about $2.3 billion. So that was a, you know, that was, that was another aha moment in my career. I'm just laughing because 
uh, to have, you know, in one meeting, we'd like to buy your company for a few billion dollars and make you the CEO of Sprint. So then you get back in the arena and you've got to go figure out a, a merger and you've got to figure out this deal that was, I think, probably some of the hardest I've seen you work. Walk us through the, the deal, getting approved with T-Mobile, which in so many ways was an impossible deal to pull off. It got done. I remember just the joy of getting that done and, and watching that happen in your life. Um, what was that like for you? I think first was becoming the CEO of Sprint and injecting an entrepreneurial spirit to a company that was founded in 1899. So it's a 120-year-old history company company was losing $5 billion a year. It had lost $25 billion in the last five years, so it wasn't a last year problem. It was bleeding millions and millions of customers, and we were, I think, a few weeks away from bankruptcy. And, and coming in and, putting, and, and turning around Sprint, and putting an entrepreneurial spirit, and redefining the brand, and making the most iconic advertising campaign when we brought the Can You Hear Me guy now from Verizon, and, you know, and changing the culture to actually winning and beating Verizon and AT&T for, I think, eight or nine consecutive quarters, we, we basically put Spring back, you know, back on track, back in the game. And it was fascinating to change the culture of a company that hadn't been winning for many years. So it was probably the most fascinating experience. It was an incredible experience to move to Kansas City. You know, I've been living in Miami. But uh, that was probably one of the best surprises in my life to go to Kansas City and, and, and just loving it. And once Sprint was, I would say, with the right financial trajectory, once the company started to do well, we figured that we had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to create one of the most iconic mergers ever created. And iconic for several reasons. One, because it was impossible mission. Everybody told us there's absolutely no way that you can merge these two companies. It's been tried three or four different times. Secondly, it's because of once we combine them, we believe that we can create one of the most fascinating wireless companies ever, especially with the launch of 5G. And then lastly is the T-Mobile CEO and myself. We've been enemies all along in this fight. And to suddenly get together and put this merger, it was fascinating. And first, we had to convince the DOJ and the FCC why this merger was good for the consumer, why this merger was good for America. I got to, to do a few things that were on my bucket list, like testifying Congress. That was pretty fascinating. And when I thought I had gotten it done, this was the only merger that actually took me three times to do congressional hearings. And while we got the approval and we started to celebrate against all odds, the attorney generals got together and they said, we're going to sue to stop the merger. I don't think that happened since the 1940s. So we had to go into trial. And it was fascinating. I mean, being in the witness stand, I never had a chance to do that before. So, and the fact that we defeated the attorney generals and we won the right to merge these two companies, this is a, this combined, I think the combined enterprise value of the two companies and merger time was close to I think 130, $140 billion, which makes it one of the largest mergers ever done. So, and by the time you show, by the time you come and you show this, or we get this podcast live, we have, we're going to basically sell all, most of Sprint shares into T-Mobile, making it probably the largest or the second largest secondary offer ever made in the financial markets. So to me, Sprint was fascinating because I went there, I did a no-talco, I fixed a company, we merged a company, we closed in the middle of financial crisis, 
and now we're able to monetize our position. So that, that has been to me one of the most fascinating things that I've ever done the, the spring, the full 360. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. We're going to come shortly to what makes you tick and how you do it in a moment. I want to like dig deep into that psyche and that brain of yours. Um, but I, I think we'd be at a loss not to mention that post that merger, you just stepped in as executive chairman for WeWork and for you know all of us in the startup community, WeWork's path was one of the most talked about stories in tech. And now during a time of COVID, knowing that you have all of the work ahead of you and I know that it excites you and that you're really invigorated by it, but tell us what you're most excited about now in your WeWork chapter. So, you know, as soon as I finished the merger, I went to work for Softbank as the CEO of Softbank to oversee, you know, pretty much all of the companies and investments that we have, which is large in nature, it's about $400 billion of assets ranging from telco satellite companies, uh, real estate companies like WeWork and some others. And from one day to another, I was sitting there and I figured out, you know, I started seeing how WeWork, the whole WeWork debacle started to happen. So probably one of the toughest decisions we had to do with Massa was, do we double down on WeWork or do we run away from WeWork? And we, we sat back and we, you know, we figured that really nothing had changed. You know, we always thought WeWork was a great business. It's one of the few businesses in the world that's disrupting a category that's never been disrupted, which is real estate. It's just $3 trillion category. It's a, there have been zero innovation, zero disruption. And the fact that we could make people's lives easier by just walking into WeWork and have access to an office or have access to a bunch of offices and not your traditional way, which, hey, you got to go find an office space, you got to get a contractor, you got to get an architect, you got to get a permit, you got to sign a 20-year lease, that is painful. So the WeWork value proposition, you know, it's, strong. it's, a, it's, it's as strong as it's ever been. And the only thing that went wrong, in my opinion, was entrepreneur. But the, the fundamental belief in what we work on the business is we loved it. So we decided to double down and we invested, you know, I think like an extra seven or eight billion dollars when everybody in the world thought that it shouldn't be done. So we've been running WeWork now for the last six months. Our conviction hasn't changed. Uh, there's more at stake than there has ever been, as, as all of you in the venture business. It's funny, every meeting that I go, everybody talks pre-WeWork and post-WeWork. So we have a, the responsibility of turning around WeWork, which we will, no doubt. We, pub we publicly say that we expect WeWork to be profitable in 2021, and we expect WeWork to be generating positive cash flow in 2022. So uh, it's fascinating. It, you know, uh, it's fascinating to see the size and the scale of WeWork. There's no other business in the world that has a thousand you know, I always put things in perspective. We have a thousand buildings all over the world 
It took Mary 124 years to put 800 hotels. It took WeWork, I think, two to three years to open close to a thousand buildings spread all over the world. So we are strong, you know, we have liquidity, we have no problem, or I feel very strong about being able to weather the crisis. And what's unique is demand is so high for a product because a lot of people now, rather than going to their headquarters, they want to go to WeWork, they want to work out of home, they want to use the WeWork facility you know, a few days a week. So, you know, we have a lot of conviction in terms of, of fixing WeWork. So therefore, the venture, so, so we can stop this before WeWork and after WeWork, and there'll only be one after WeWork. I love it. Um, if you have one prediction about the future of work, I feel like I could guess it, but what would you say if you fast forward five years, 10 years, what will be the biggest change about the way that we work coming out of COVID? You know, I think that COVID has taught us that we can do a lot of work the same way we're communicating today via Zoom or via other video conferences. There's no need to go to a corporate headquarters. There's no need to be surrounded by your team, you know, at all times. And there's no need to travel. I mean, I remember how many times we had to travel for that one sales meeting. And now that we've done it via Zoom, we realize, oh my God, we could do, we could be a lot more efficient and more effective. You know, it's our belief that the, the role of the corporate headquarters will be highly diminished. The companies will have the hub and spoke model where, hey, you might have a headquarters in New York where you might shop once or twice a week, but you're going to have satellite offices in the different servers in New York. And you as an employee are going to spend your time working out of home, which is proven it can be done very well. You're going to have a chance to go to many different offices close to your home in the server whenever you want to go. And once in a while, whenever you need to have these big meetings with all of your team or with executive meetings, then you're going to go to headquarters. So you're going to see a lot of change to the to what happens to you know a lot of geography. For example, you know there's no need you know you know when, when all the tech companies were opening up in San Francisco, the real estate markets in San Francisco was out of control. There were no vacancies. They were building as fast as they could. And I think a lot of the jobs that could be done can be done from many other cities around the country, which is basically where you live. So I think a lot of big changes coming as a result that we've actually built a habit now that we can run businesses and we can communicate with our employees without the need of being sitting in the same room and doing it face-to-face. -face. And that's going to have lasting effects in the way we work in the way the geographical distribution of workers happen. Not only do I, I, I agree with you, but I really, really hope that more of this sticks because I think we're finding it's a lot saner of a way for all of us to operate also. There's something in your psyche that when things get really bad, really stressful, really dark, really hard, you wake up as opposed to shutting down. So stress makes you better. Why? I think I've always liked complex situations. I've always liked, you know, to do the impossible is what drives things out of me. I mean, what drives me. I had an early moment in my life when I was part of 1993, right after I graduated college. I had a chance to be part of the team, the management team that took Bolivia to the World Cup in soccer. And Bolivia making it to the World Cup is like your high school Alexa winning the World Series is impossible. Uh, and because we get to play against Brazil, against Argentina, and I was part of a team that taught me that if you have a clear plan, you work with a lot, you put a lot of hard work and a lot of passion, and you love what you do, you can achieve things that you never thought were possible. And we actually took Bolivia to the World Cup, 
And that taught me that, hey, you know, a kid from Bolivia should have never build the world's largest distribution company. Uh, somebody, you know, somebody, when, when we took over uh, Sprint, you know, it was called Mission Impossible. I mean, I remember Kramer uh, just talking about Sprint, that it was, it had zero chance of surviving. And it just, you know, when, when the world is against us, the same thing happens with WeWork, it's when I thrive, it's what excites me the most, just to prove people, just to prove myself and prove people around me that, you know, if, that if, you put, if you're organizing your thinking and you have clear goals, you can pretty much achieve whatever you want. So I like those situations, I like complex situations, I like, I like the, the situations that most people would call it impossible. Um. Do you think you were always that way, or do you think you learned that? Uh, if you rewind, um, were you the kid when you were five, when you were 10, that if somebody told you you couldn't do it, you said, I'm going to prove you wrong? I mean, clearly you've gotten formidable at it. Um, every one of your titles uh, in each of your roles, you've been tasked with a superhuman task. Um, but do you think you've gotten better at it over time, or do you think you always were just that person that when somebody said, no, you can't, you said, watch me? I think it always was that, you know, every time there were complex situations in my high school, I was the one who calmed everybody down, put a plan together, and, and set the troops uh, in motion. And, and that's been my life. You know, I did it in college. I did it, you know, every time there was something difficult, I always liked to jump in. And, and, and it just, it's been my life. Uh, now, now the only thing that has changed, I think, from my selling frequent flyer miles out of my dorm is that there's a few more zeros at the end of the problem that I'm solving, but it, it, is, the, it, it is the exact same thing. I mean, uh, again, you know, the spring problem was a hundred billion dollar problem. And in college it was a thousand dollar problem, but it is, it's, it's the same, you know, I, I like the situation. What's your toolkit? When you think about your own leadership skills, what are the things that you lean on? I think first and foremost is lead by example, right? You know, you, it's, you cannot expect other people to work hard if you're, if you're not the hardest working. You cannot expect other people to be organized if you're not the most organized. It's, it's, I've always been a big believer that, you know, I hold myself to the highest standards and I will hold my team to even a higher standard. And, and people are willing to give you everything they have if, you are, if you're leaving everything on the table. So, you know, I have, I have an amazing team of people that support me on a, on a day-to-day basis. And together, you know, once in a while, we sit down and say, holy shit, look at everything we've been able to do. And there's not a single week where we don't have, where we're not solving a problem, where we're not defining something new. So I, so I think we just do so many exciting things at the same time that, you know, that's, that's, that's it. But I, I always say, you know, you, leading by example has always been probably the most important thing, and then never compromise on your principles, right? I mean, you know, everybody that works with for me understand that, for example, mediocrity is just, is, we detest mediocrity, right? And, you know, we're never gonna compromise in mediocrity, we're never gonna compromise in hard work, and we're never gonna compromise in setting, you know, pretty tough goals to achieve, so we're always pushing ourselves to our limits. You clearly have surrounded yourself with wonderful people. What is your favorite interview question? So if someone's going to come and be your number two, somebody critical, you cannot afford to lose. What is the thing that you like to ask them so you can see into their soul and figure out whether or not they deserve to be on your team? So this has a bowl, right? And I always say, you know, lately, 
you know, because I mean, the hardest thing in the world is to select great people. And, and I got I've had some misses and that, that I, that, that I want to hit my head against the wall and I've had some amazing, amazing wins. But as, as you become wiser and older, you know, one of the things that I've learned is you get so much more of an interview if you just listen and you just don't talk. You know, there's a reason, I always say, you know, there's a reason why God has given us two eyes and two ears and only one mouth. And if you listen and you just don't talk, you'll be amazed. I, I just people just keep on talking and talking and talking. And you can discover a lot when you just let people free flow in an interview. And by the end of those interviews, you know, I really have an idea whether those people can be part of my team or not. Uh, when I was young, it was different. It was all me selling, you know, and me doing the talking. And I, I guess, you know, the older that we get, I just spent, you know, I was interviewing for a few positions a couple of weeks ago, and I had the best time just, just I just asked one question, and I let somebody else speak for 30 minutes, and I learned so much. So, uh, so I you know I, I, I'm, lo I'm loving interviewing people, but just letting people talk. And then, you know, the one, the one question is, is looking at somebody in the eyes and, and asking them, if they really want or are capable of doing that job. Because you realize that most people are just looking for a job. And they will tell you anything that you want to hear in terms of why they should, you know, why they want that job. And, and when you look at people in their eyes and you can see if it's true or not, you realize that most of the times they're just looking for a job. And we don't want people who are looking for the job. We want to make sure we're people who are incredibly passionate for that job. When you think about the thing over the last 20 years that you had to get better at, if you had to say one trait that you had to work on in 20 years, what was it? So, and, and this is probably my biggest area of personal development. And that is to have the ability to assess a situation, to be able to step back, plan a little better before you jump in. And, and, and I, if I could go back to Sprint and redo my first 10 days, or go back to WeWork and redo my first 10 days, now that I run, I don't know, something like 40 or 50 companies and have great CEOs in all those companies, what I've learned is if I can step back, and I tell you, COVID has taught me a lot, which is step back, and if you're not in the weeds on day one and jump in to fix things on the first one hour, you can step back and, and you have a much bigger horizon. Uh, you have a much bigger horizon and it allows you to make better decisions. And I've learned that, hey, everything doesn't need to be done that day. You can step back. And I didn't do that. And I remember when I went to Sprint, I couldn't wait. Three days into the job, I was already checking great plans and hiring new people. So I, I, think, I think patience, but you learn that with age. You know, be, be a little more patient, be a little more thoughtful and understand that if you don't fix something today, hey, it's, it's not like the world's going to fall apart. You can take an extra day and be able to make better decisions. I'm laughing because I understand why we're such good friends and it's because yeah. uh, we both are impatient people and we just want to go. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I agree with you that with age, you get better and better at being patient. What do you swear by when it comes to sleep, eating, exercise, routine? What makes you tick? So I said the first thing that I have is I have an amazing team that surrounds me that gives me an exponential access to do many things, right? When you have a team that you can multiply your ability to achieve things, it's incredible, right? And I have a, I'm surrounded by a team of people 
that allows me to be doing four or five enormous transactions at the same time that I trust, that I, I, I value what they're doing. So, so to a lot of people, is hey, this guy doesn't sleep. That's not true. You know, I sleep like anybody else, maybe, maybe a couple of hours less. But I, I just have an amazing team of people that just always make sure that I'm properly prepared, that they've helped me think through the issues and all that. Uh, as it relates to, to, you know, to doing things that, that you know, keep me going, is I always have one crazy goal that I want to achieve that helps me, right? Last year was doing a marathon. Right, that was my big goal, and which I partially height, ran with him. Partially, everybody. And <laughs> my height, my weight, and my age—it was like an impossible mission. But that kept me going, and that kept me in shape. You know, my, my four audacious goals for this year. You know, one is you know I want to learn how to dirt bike, which is what I'm doing these last couple of weeks, which has been an incredible experience. I want to uh, now I'm into biking. I want to run. I want to ride a. I want to participate in a we call Grand Fondo, which is a hundred mile race. I want to learn how to kite surf this year, and more importantly, and I'll share this with you. I was checking the Guinness Book of World Records, and the oldest professional soccer player that ever played was 48 years old. And as you know, I'm going to turn 50 next year, and I want to become the goalie who will become the oldest professional goalie to ever play a professional match. So once I'm done with my dirt biking, I want to be able to you know, become the oldest goalie that ever played a professional game. And being an owner in two teams, you know, that gives me a chance to to have a preferential access to tryouts and to maybe convince the coach. Favorite uh, thing. <laughs> that, that give me that, and, 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 and the coach will take, I'll promise the coach I will work hard and we're winning a game and they can put me in for 10 or 15 minutes. You know, that is a dream that I want, that I, that I, you know, that I want to do. And the reason why I share that with you it's even though I work real hard and I'm passionate and I'm a perfectionist and I will drive real hard, I always have you can you know I always have these big goals next to me every time, you know, whether it's again the marathon, the ground fondo, the dirt biking, the, the whatever it is, you know, that, that keeps me going and that keeps me sane and that 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 keeps me that and then the third leg, which I think is, is a very important leg, is my family, right? I mean, you know, I have a six kids which you know, not a lot of people have six kids. Five beautiful daughters and one handsome son, but he is he is so, the dad to five little girls. It's amazing. Yeah. One older so, girl, but four little ones. So I, I think you know it's a perfect work-life balance when everything is mixed, right? Business is mixed, families in the middle, and those crazy fitness or audacious goals that I set up for myself to push myself. So when you put all these things together. Hey, you know, I do have a balanced life. I take care of my health. I have a large family that I spend a lot of time with them. And, you know, and, and I drive hard on my businesses. So I'm a very satisfied and fulfilled human being. I mean, I think the thing that I've learned from this interview is that you just go for it. You set a goal. It doesn't matter if it's wild and you just go for it and you have fun doing it. And I think that that is a real magnetism that you bring to everything that you do, especially your friendships. I want to end with just a few quick fire questions here. If you look across your entire career and you have to pick one moment, one moment where you, you literally couldn't believe something happened, you only get one. What was your biggest pinch me moment of your career so far to date? 
probably the day, as, the day I became the CEO of Sprint and I saw Brightstar, and I got to walk into that enormous campus of Sprint. And I, I, I just pinched myself and I, I went to the, I, I closed that office, that, that office was larger than I've ever seen in my life. And I said, holy shit, I'm the CEO of a publicly traded company that I, I just never thought that was possible. And, you know, and, and you know, if, if nobody would have been there, I would have started jumping up and down and screaming, but I, I contained myself and I, I just couldn't believe it. I love that. And I imagine you walking up there to this massive campus and you're like, I'm the CEO of this business today. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't do it like sometimes, you know, like you have a bad dream. And I mean, this was like a good dream. Like I, it was like, I couldn't believe it. I just, I just was telling myself, I hope this is not a dream and I hope this is real. So that was, that was a very important moment for me. That's so cute. Okay, so my last question is, if it's a Sunday night and you're looking at your week and you're excited about, about a meeting, what, what is the thing about work that gets you the most excited? What type of thing is it? Is it a deal on the horizon? Is it getting to meet somebody? What is the thing that when you're like truly excited on a Sunday, why? So when I look at a Sunday and I look at what we have to accomplish every week, we have three to five enormous things that I got to accomplish with my team. So Sunday nights are, are really tough days because like, like, hey, you go to bed, but you, you know, when you love what you do, right, you want that Monday to come faster than ever. I'm not saying that doesn't happen on Saturdays because on Saturdays I'm not with my family on Sunday, but Sunday night, if I could erase Sunday night and make Monday mornings come faster because when you, but this doesn't apply for everybody. You got to love what you do. And there are moments in my life where I just love so much what I'm doing or I'm working on some enormous transaction or launching a plan or a campaign or, or I'll, I'll tell you my last one was uh, when we just launched a 100 million opportunity fund to fund entrepreneurs of color, mainly Hispanics, Blacks, Native Americans. And I was just watching TV. And I think it was a Sunday night. And I just saw all the riots and I saw all the crazy stuff going on. And I started looking at my social media and then everybody was saying, oh, I stand with the black community. I stand with the black community. I'm telling myself, like, what does standing mean? Do something about it. And, that, and then, you know, I told myself, I said, what is it that I can do? And, and you know, I'm lucky to be part of Southpark, which is a company that, hey, in less than 24 hours, we said, hey, let's do this. And, you know, we just say, hey, we launched a hundred million fund, which has been incredibly successful. Uh, and we did it in less than 24 hours. And it became, I think, the second, the largest uh, fund, venture capital fund dedicated to entrepreneurs of color. So that got me incredibly excited, right? You know, last night was a Sunday and I'm sick and tired of Bolivian soccer being so bad. So I said, I'm going to go buy all the TV rights. I give him a hundred million dollars to get Bolivian soccer to get be big again and that got me excited so you know every week every week there's one big enormous project or horizon that uh, that that gets me excited so you know thank god that i'm in the middle of so many exciting things i love it i feel like this is such a good place to end i feel so lucky to call you a best friend uh, well listen thank you alexa it's always good to talk to you and uh, hope to see you soon once the social distancing goes away Agreed. Thank you so much.